Do please take a seat. And as Paul said, we'll be starting a new series in the book of Ruth this evening. And we're starting tonight with Ruth chapter 1. You'll find it on page 222 in these black church Bibles. But as we're turning that up, page 222 in the church Bibles, let me lead us in prayer as we ask for God's help as we come to study his word together. Our Father, we've just been singing that your power will keep us until the day where we go home to be with you in glory forever. And we pray that by that same power, you would be at work now to speak to us through your word, giving us understanding, giving us eyes to hear and hearts to receive what you would tell us through this part of scripture tonight. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ruth chapter 1, we'll read the whole thing. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malin and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malin and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, 
for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Amen. I wonder how you would answer the question, what's the most romantic story you've ever heard? You might think of some of the great couples from literature and the media through the years. You might think of Romeo and Juliet. You might think of Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy. You might think of Superman and Lois, Gavin and Stacey, John and Hillary. There's any number of ways. I know John and Hillary are real, uh, but there's any number of couples you might spring to mind when we think of the most romantic story. If I were to refine the terms a bit and just ask believers through the ages, what's the most romantic story we know? I wonder if Ruth and Boaz, two of the main characters in Ruth, would feature quite heavily on that list. Over these next four weeks, we'll be studying the book of Ruth, and it's a great book to be studying, partly because, as I hope we've just got a flavor of in reading this first chapter, it is a really great story. Here in our English Bibles, Ruth is placed between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel, two of these huge stories in the history of God's people, foundational in Israel's national identity. And, and right in the middle of these two grand narratives, we have the story of Ruth, this little intimate family drama, or so it seems. The amazing thing is that even as we zoom in to what happened in the Bethlehem wheat fields with this one family and how they were able to find hope in the midst of tragedy, we're also being drawn to zoom much further out and see the very heart of the covenant-keeping God for his people. We see his heart displayed on the small scale in the lives of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and on the biggest scale imaginable, as we see that even through this seemingly ordinary story, God is at work to bring blessings which last far beyond their lifetimes and even ours this evening. As we go and find out more about how Ruth and Boaz come to be married, I will let you decide whether you think it's a romantic story. But as we begin tonight, I don't think it's a controversial thing to say that Ruth is a love story. Not a human love story, but a story of God's covenant-keeping love, his hesed, his steadfast love that we've been thinking about all night, the love that one of our children's Bibles calls God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, which he does not stop lavishing on his people, even when everything seems lost. Ruth is a love story about God's steadfast, committed kindness to his people, which endures no matter how bleak things may seem. 
That's what we want to see, first of all, this evening, as we begin the story in the darkest of days for our main characters. The main thing that we're being taught in Ruth 1, and in fact in all of Ruth, is that even when the struggle is real, the Lord is really at work to sustain, to bless, and to redeem. And you'll see if you have one of the sheets that that's our two headings this evening. The struggle is real. The Lord is really at work. So first of all, the struggle is real. And we can't have feel to notice that things are not good for Naomi as the book opens. Now, there are multiple layers to her suffering. It starts off with not being just about Naomi at all. This book is set, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. If you were here in church last year for our series in the Judges, you will know that that is significant. This is, this is not a happy time in the life of Israel. This is not once upon a time in a land far away. No, the days of the Judges contain some of the most dark chapters indeed in the history of God's people. The drama here is situated in a period marked by downward spirals of increasing sin and judgment. But as if that wasn't enough, we read that this is the days when the judges ruled and there was a famine in the land. A bleak time in the midst of the bleakest time for God's people. That's the context in which we find Elimelech. Seeing that there's no food in Bethlehem where his family live and taking them to the land of Moab in search of a better life. It's quite a quick detail in the text. We'll, we'll look back to exactly what's going on there later. But for now, let's just see what happens. We find quickly that the grass is definitely not greener in Moab than in Bethlehem. Verse 3, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with the two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah and the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, but both Malin and Kilian died, so that Naomi was left with her two sons, without her two sons and her husband. You may have noticed that the Bible sometimes records things so quickly that we don't always register the shock of them. Let me ask you, do you think that this was a matter-of-fact thing for Naomi? that these are things that just happened in a couple of lines of text. Naomi's husband dies, and she's left, left in a strange land far away from her people. And sadly, worse is to come as her boys die too, and she is left without her two sons and her husband. I was telling some friends recently how already I feel I've reached the point in life where 10 years doesn't feel like that long ago. 2013 feels very recent. I imagine 10 years felt pitifully short for Naomi. But what's even worse for her is that in this society, that meant she hadn't just lost all three of her closest family members, but all three of her providers. This is a society in which the men were quite literally the breadwinners. Naomi hasn't merely lost her family, she's lost everything. A few years ago, I was chatting to some people about evangelism, and they said they thought it was a bit of a waste of time. They didn't see the point in sharing the gospel with people, 
because they thought we should be helping people deal with their real needs rather than just telling them words. Naomi has been left without her husband and her sons. It doesn't get much more real than that. Now, there are lots of things going on in the book of Ruth and in this story of heartbreak and loss for Naomi. Wonderfully, though, I think at least one of them is that her story shows us that the Bible cares about answering some of our biggest, most real questions. Questions like, well, the gospel is all well and good. How does it make any difference to Naomi? How does God actually help me when the going gets tough? Where is God when I'm going through the worst pain imaginable? What is God doing when I'm weeping by the side, the graveside of another lost loved one? My friends, God's word never sugarcoats the hard things nor does it offer simple, pat answers to deep and agonizing questions like those ones. But a big hope and prayer is that we will see in more and more detail over these next four weeks in Ruth that this story gives us every reason and every confidence to hope in the Lord and to trust that he is at work even when we're going through our worst. The same dynamics by which the cross of Christ, the seemingly most most worst pain imaginable, most abject defeat we could conceive of is actually God's moment of utter triumph. Those same dynamics are at work as we see this story of human tragedy turn into one of eternal triumph. But before we get there, though, we can't skirt around the third part of this threefold crisis. In the midst of all the national and family tragedy in Ruth 1, we see that Naomi is going through a real crisis of faith. That's clear enough. In verses 19 to 21, the end of the chapter, when they get back to Bethlehem, Naomi is in no doubt about where the blame for all this lies. Naomi as a name means pleasant. The women welcome back their friend Naomi, the pleasant one. She says, verse 20, don't call, me, don't call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? That's the obvious faith crisis that we see here in chapter 1. Naomi chalks all this up to the work of the Almighty, the Lord, the Lord, the Almighty. She hasn't lost her faith altogether, but she has come back with such an acute sense of loss, such an acute sense of emptiness, as she puts it here. And she's lost any faith that God is for her. She's come back with this sense that she has tasted God's judgment and it's left a bitter taste. Did you notice that there's courtroom language in there? The Lord has testified against me. That's because actually the slightly more subtle faith crisis comes at least 10 years, maybe a bit more earlier than the end of the chapter. 
all the way back in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And a wee bit later, there were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Again, it seems a small detail as we read it. It seems almost insignificant. But actually, what we're seeing here is that on a national level, the faith crisis comes when God allows a famine to fall on his people. The law says that is one of the consequences of failing to keep covenant, failing to be faithful to God. This is one of the things he says he will allow to befall them. Their faithlessness means he has allowed famine to fall on his people. That's the national level. But then on the family level, the faith crisis comes for Elimelech and Naomi. She includes herself in the decision later in chapter 1, when at the first sign of trouble, they decide to leave and take their family away from the promised land, the place where God has promised to provide and to care for his people, even more specifically, from Bethlehem, the house of bread, and into Moab, a country with at least a checkered past with God's people. Some of the selected highlights of Moab that we read throughout the Old Testament, this is a nation descended from Lot's relationship with his daughters, This is the country of which King Eglon was king, who tormented God's people for 18 years in the days of the judges. This is a country whose evil, whose child sacrifices and evil practices like that are so great that God forbids them from joining his people, even to the 10th generation. It's not just, well, there aren't many jobs in St. Andrews, so I'll move to Edinburgh when I graduate. It's more like, there's not many jobs here, I'll join the Islamic State. That's how one commentator put it, controversially, but capturing the shock of why anyone of God's people would go to Moab. Why there? And not just to go there, but for the boys into Moabite marriages. Another thing which God has expressly commanded against, marrying people from other nations, other religions. We see then At the start of Ruth, a real crisis of faith, a real failure to believe and to trust that God will continue to provide when the going gets tough. Now, don't mishear me. As I say that, I am fundamentally not saying, therefore, Naomi got what was coming for her. Nor am I saying that that's necessarily true for us when we go through really hard times. Wonderfully, if Naomi and the rest of the people are experiencing covenant curse, we know that in Christ, such curse will never befall us. Christ became curse for us. Our response to suffering doesn't have to be trying to connect the dots of which sin led to which bad thing befalling us. Of course not. But Naomi's story should give us pause for thought. You see, Naomi and Elimelech, they abandon their trust in God and his promises, and they try to go their own way, and it ends in tragedy. And I wonder if sometimes, if we reflect on it, are there forms of suffering in our Christian lives which can actually take the form of self-inflicted wounds? 
As I've been reflecting on this in the days and weeks leading up to this sermon, I've become more and more conscious of the many ways in my Christian walk where I feel to do what God commands and I do the things that he commands against. And then I wonder why I'm not experiencing blessing in life, why I'm feeling unfulfilled. Maybe it's when I don't devote enough time to praying or to meditating on God's word and then I wonder why I'm feeling far and distant from him. Or maybe it's when I feel to give myself over fully to loving and serving God's people, and I wonder why I feel lonely and disconnected. And I'm sure there are many more things we could think of, things where we feel to do what Scripture encourages, even commands us to do, and then wonder why we feel just not quite right spiritually or in the Christian life. Now, again, faithfulness is absolutely no guarantee of an easy life. Of course it's not. But nor is taking matters into our own hands and ignoring God's promises and ignoring God's commands any better. And actually, we know that sometimes when we choose to go our own way, we are robbing ourselves of the blessings that God has promised to his people. Certainly true for Naomi anyway here in Ruth chapter 1. Hence the rueful tone in her words at the end. Maybe she's thinking, if only we just kept trusting God in the first place, then maybe he wouldn't have dealt me this bitter blow. Well, if that's what's going through Naomi's head, then God, for his part, spends the next three chapters demonstrating in vivid detail his faithfulness to Naomi and how that never wavered, even as her faithfulness to him did. As we read Ruth chapter 1, we are in the very privileged position of being able to look back to the cross, as we've been reflecting on already this evening, look back to all that God has done for us in Christ and see how he remains so steadfastly, immovably, certainly faithful to us, even when we are faithless. But I want us to see how we, as we look at the detail of Ruth chapter 1, see the first shoots of that faithfulness breaking through, even in this quite bleak beginning to the story. The struggle is real. Oh, is it so real for Naomi? But the Lord is really at work. Our second point. We see this in a couple of ways. First of all, Ruth goes, and I'm kicking myself that I didn't call this point, Ruth returns, because return is all over this chapter. If you were to get a Bible gateway, Ruth chapter 1, go control F, return, it would light up like a Christmas tree. If you were to do that with the Hebrew, it would get even more light, because some of the ways we've translated it, it's actually return. First of all, verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab bit later in verse 7. She set out from the place where she was to return to the land of Judah. It's so subtle, it's easy to miss. But even in those simple words, we see the first sign that things are on the up for Naomi. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the word for return means repent. People are urged to return to the Lord. Now, we've already seen that's not quite where Naomi is at. But it's really significant, therefore, that the narrator uses that language 
to describe what's going on. It's a bit like the the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. This is the point at the bottom of the ark where Naomi has come to her senses. And maybe it's grudgingly at this point, but as she returns to the land where God has promised to bless his people, she is absolutely on the right path. Not that she has yet realized the significance of what she's doing, though, as she tells her daughters-in-law to return. Same word, very significant. Tells Orpah and Ruth to return, verse 8, each of you to her mother's house. Verse 10, Naomi will return. Verse 11, Naomi said, turn back, return, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Again, verse 12, turn back, return. Just look at how often Naomi urges Orpah and Ruth to return. Not just to their families, which might seem sensible, but to their gods. There's that faith crisis again. Naomi seems to have lost any hope, any faith that her God, the living God, the covenant God, can do any good for these Moabite daughters-in-law. Now again, I think throughout Ruth chapter 1, we shouldn't be too harsh on Naomi. We shouldn't be too harsh on Orpah for her decision to go back to Moab. That's the very sensible option. Going home to her people to seek comfort and security, crucially to seek marriage there, it seems like the only sensible and straightforward choice to make. But I wonder here in this, this story of Orpah and Ruth, if we're, we're seeing display the choice of the two turnings that we must all make in, in the Christian life. Turning towards the promise of comfort and security and ease in what the world holds out for us, with a hard and very costly decision to turn towards the Lord, to a much less easy pathway through life, but one in which he has promised to bless and to keep and to bring us home to be with him. Just contrast Naomi's pleading with her daughters-in-law to return to Moab with Ruth's resolve to return with Naomi. Verse 16, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord, the covenant Lord, whose name she uses here, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. One of the most wonderful things at the heart of this quite dark chapter is that even through tragedy and heartbreak, God brings Ruth the Moabite to know and to love him, to take on her lips, her, a Moabite, not one of God's people, to take on her lips the covenant name of the Lord and say, the place where he has promised blessing with his people, that is where I want to be. It strikes me that Naomi probably wouldn't be high on our list of CU speakers. 
We wouldn't necessarily want to ask her to come and share her story on night one of events week. Oh, well, the Lord dealt very bitterly with me. We'd be feeling quite awkward at that point and wondering how quickly we could get her off the stage. But is it possible that even through Naomi's weak faith, her faith, her, her crisis faith, where she doesn't seem to fully grasp or believe or trust that God is for her, is it possible that even through her, Ruth has seen enough of the covenant-keeping God, the God of steadfast love, that she wants to count herself in? It's deeply covenantal language that Ruth uses when she pledges herself to Naomi. It's almost like a marriage vow. We're seeing here that Ruth's return, it's not just a geographical move. It is truly a spiritual return. Because Moab must look every bit as sensible and appealing to her as it does for Orpah, the place where her family can look after her, where she can find another husband to provide for her from among her own people. But for Ruth, being in the place where the covenant God has promised blessing, well, that's better by far. In that sense, Ruth's return here prefigures a return to Christ. That costly decision to leave behind father and mother and brothers, to turn away from idols and to serve the living God with all our lives. That reading from Colossians that we had earlier reminds us that it is God himself who in Christ has moved us from Moab and into the place of blessing, into Christ. From the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The true return for us is what God has done for us in Christ. But then the pattern of returning is something that we need to be mindful of through all of the Christian life. That settled decision of the will to keep walking closely with God in Christ, no matter what life may throw up for us. So maybe there are some of us this evening who are aware that we have been walking away from Christ and trying to find fulfillment in things outside of him. But really in our hearts, we know that's only left us feeling hollow, empty, and ashamed. Many of us may not have felt that already, but we'll have felt the tug of those things, felt the appeal of Moab all around us. It was so encouraging after lunch, if you were here, to hear so many of our graduating students testifying to God's faithfulness, how they've learned that time and again over their four years here in St. Andrews. And for you guys, maybe as you go out into the working world, the appeals, the, the tug of trying to go your own way and find blessing outside of the Lord and his commands will get all the more real. It's certainly a tug that we will all feel in all of the Christian life. And when we do, it's important that we don't just paper over the cracks, that we don't just put on our Sunday best and paint on a smile, but that we return to Christ 
in heart, in the mind, in what we do and how we continue to meet with God's people and share our burdens and our worries and our questions and our joys with them. That the pattern of returning to the Lord in Christ is one that we maintain through all of our days walking with him, knowing that it is only in Christ that God promises to always bless and guard and keep us. So let's be marked by the same pattern of returning that we see here. And did you notice that return comes up again towards the end of the chapter? When Naomi says, the Lord brought me back empty, it's more literally, the Lord has caused me to return. Naomi is no example of model or strong faith in Ruth chapter 1. But there is a hint here that even Naomi is realizing that as one commentator put it, it is a mercy, always a mercy, to return to the land of covenant promise. She may have been going grudgingly, bitterly, with an acute sense of emptiness, but maybe even now she realizes God's mercy in bringing her to her senses and causing her to return, not just geographically, but as we'll see increasingly, spiritually too. Ruth goes back, Ruth returns with Naomi, the first sign that God is really at work, even through this tale of tragedy. And to make it even clearer, just notice one more thing in the text, God gives. Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The Lord is mentioned a lot within the drama of Ruth, but he's only mentioned twice by the narrator. The second time he's mentioned is in chapter 4 and verse 13. And spoiler alert, there he reads, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. The first is right here in chapter 1 and verse 6. Naomi had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Contrast Naomi's idea of God with what God is really like. Ruth chapter 1, God gives bread. Ruth chapter 4, God gives a baby. Even in the midst of all the family and faith and national crisis, God does not cease to be the God who gives and who blesses his people. So those of us this evening who are at the minute suffering, who even tonight are feeling acutely aware of how much we've lost, of how empty we are, and are maybe even now wondering in our confusion why God would allow us to taste such bitterness. I know it hurts. And I know that day by day it won't always feel like it. We see here an assurance that God will hold you fast as you cling to Christ, your only hope. And though the blessings won't always be material and obvious like bread and babies, we see here in Ruth chapter 1 that we can always have confidence that God is always at work to keep and to grow 
and to bless his people, turning even the most seemingly hopeless of situations into things that are somehow for the good of those who love him. Naomi may feel empty, but even as this dark chapter draws to a close, the seeds are sown for God's wonderful work of redemption. Redemption for her, the barley harvest has begun. And Ruth, the human channel through whom God will so richly, so abundantly bless Naomi, is standing right by her side. She has no idea what's coming for her, but God is already at work to redeem her situation and to bless her. But wonderfully, as we'll see, this work of redemption is not just for Naomi. Even here, in the wheat fields of Bethlehem, God is at work to bring to completion his great work of redemption, through which even we are gathered here tonight. That's the real romance at the heart of Ruth. There's many books on Ruth which have the title, The Romance of Redemption. Because as we see in more detail next week, with Boaz and Ruth and how they end up together. We're being drawn not to see a human story of courtship, but to cast our eyes on the divine romance and see how an endlessly faithful God is at work to restore and to redeem his needy and faithless people. Let me lead us in prayer then as we close. Father God, we confess our times when we are faithless, where we trust in our own ingenuity, our own ideas, and go our own way, and therefore rob ourselves of your blessings. And we also acknowledge before you that so often in the Christian life and in life in general, the struggle is real and pain is hard to bear. And yet we thank you for this story of redemption in the book of Ruth. We thank you for how you have revealed and always reveal yourself to be a faithful covenant-keeping God of steadfast love. We pray you would reveal more and more of that to us in these studies in Ruth, and we pray this evening that you would send us out rejoicing and with renewed trust that you really are for us if we trust in Christ, and that you're always at work to bring about your redemptive purposes. In all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.